Um, hi, welcome to the Antifada. Sean KB here. I'm with Andy Battle. What's up, Andy? Hey, how's everybody doing? Good, and I'm with David A. Banks from Ironweeds Pod. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, bringing me up. Uh, happy to have you. Um, as we sit here in what appears to be the kind of um, beginning of the end of the first wave of coronavirus, uh, we're now about three months into it. I was thinking today on the topic of transit that I literally haven't stepped on the subway in three months. Fucking oh, insane. wow. How does that feel for you? Feels not 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 normal. Very right. not normal. I'm missing my trains, man. But um, it seems like no matter like it seems like damn the consequences. We're going to open this country up and see what happens at this point. Yeah. How are you guys making uh, David? How are you doing upstate? You're in uh, around Troy, New York, right? How are you doing up there? Yeah, I'm in Troy, which is just uh, like 15 minutes north of Albany. And um, it's uh, it's all right. Like our, our county executive is um, a Republican. Like just everyone in county government is basically a Republican. And then the Democrats are also Republicans. And uh, they, um, uh, they, they've just completely ignored, they completely ignored the, the virus for like the first month because that was the same time that Trump was also kind of ignoring it and saying that it would go away. Um, and so today, I think, I think maybe like the last week or two, we got a testing site or something. Oh, wow. Like it's, okay. Yeah, it's been bad. Um, but uh, nothing, you know, nothing's open. I um, am sort of, uh, I, my my uh my future project is going to be a leftist prepper show. I think. Oh, that's brilliant! <laughs> you know, I we think, need that. I think that's I think that's gonna that's got to be a thing because um my wife and I, uh, Brittany, also co-host of Ironweeds, uh, we bought our house thinking about climate change. So we have like a freshwater uh, creek behind us, and we have a decent amount of land. I'm starting a garden, so it's you know like a long way to say like we're we're this is a, a good dress rehearsal for climate change right now that we've been uh, practicing. I tell you, left prepperism, man, that's very, very uh, topical. Yeah, left prepperism is seeming uh, more and more like a thing these days. Yeah, uh, don't, Andy, don't, don't buy, don't buy a, a shipping container. Those are scams. Right? They just <laughs> they don't, they, they're not insulated. They don't last as long as you think they do. Don't do it. I have the dream of doing that because I'm a, I'm a metal worker. You know, I can... Uh, weld and I can do uh, oxyacetylene burning. And then I looked it up and the amount that it takes to actually build something worthwhile out of those things for the reason oh, yeah. you're talking about, it's kind of absurd. And it looks like shit. So <laughs> It also looks like shit. I mean, there's like a bunch of uh, modern architects that try to build pretty things out of shipping containers and they still look like shit. Looks like just, shit. They're just lying to each other. Squid lying. Um, yeah. Andy, How's uh, Corona treating you, man? You're uh, down in central Brooklyn, right? Yeah. You know, I, too, remember the last time I was on the New York City subway. It was March 12th. That was the last day I was in the classroom. Wow. And, you know, I just remember very clearly, like, getting off the subway. I was in a pizza shop on Nostrand Avenue and looking on the news, and they were announcing First cases of coronavirus in New York City schools, uh, one of them quite close to the school that I'm in, and they were announcing that the uh, school's chancellor uh, was instructing schools not to report cases to the health department because they want to handle it internally or something. Wow. And it's just like, I just 
think, you know, when all of this is over in six months or six years or however yeah. long, <laughs> if ever, it if is ever. like when the history of this thing is written, I'm just thinking about who is going to come out looking good in all of this. And, you know, we're all here in New York State, and I just think the the ability of Andrew Cuomo to capitalize on literally anything, including yep. his extraordinarily poor handling of the crisis yep. in the early days, it would be impressive if it didn't make you just want to curl up in a ball and cry, you know? I t- yes, I, I tell you, man, the way that uh, Cuomo and his people have spun this has been absolutely incredible. It's um, Trumpian. It's it's and it's Trumpian, and it comes out of I think this like strong yearning that liberals have right now in this country. You know, liberals writ large, the Democratic Party, and then people who are uh, sympathetic to them for the kind of like technocratic, stable leadership that they thought they saw under Barack Obama. So Cuomo has been able to use his sort of platform to become the anti-Trump, right? And um, papering over the first month of the crisis, which was an absolute fucking disaster. And then, of course, papering over the fact that Cuomo and the legislature was trying to cut Medicaid during the corona crisis. They're trying to cut medical funding. They're trying to slash hospitals. Uh, They're trying to fuck up the schools while all this is happening. But I guess the... uh, I don't know the, the the spectacle of watching Cuomo like call Trump a uh, I don't know a jerk off on TV is too much for some reporters. I agree. It's just this amazing lesson in how like the the television performance of competence or like the ability to resemble an actor who plays the president um, right. is like <laughs> enough to make you wildly popular with a a large segment of the population, even when your competence is largely devoted to fixing a problem that you created. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This has been like the worst. It's not an exaggeration to say it's like the worst outbreak in the world. And so it's it's like, how the hell can you act like you're a savior or something by saying like, look at the terrible thing I did. You know, so like, it's a, right. like I fucked this up so badly, and like you can see, like just how um, uh, uh, how how surface level his leadership is when like he unveiled that that wall of masks that was sent oh, to him. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, no, those masks were supposed to go on faces, bro. It's not supposed to be like a, like a bad art installation. Like why why did why did you ruin those masks? Uh, uh, and it's because he needed them for a spectacle. Like it's, it's you just scratch the surface of the so-called leadership, and it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's just Trump, but boring. Like he, he's a boring Trump, right. except that he wore a tight polo shirt that you could see his nipple ring in, and you know he did that on purpose. <laughs> he, he, he. You say that he, he is like the the anti-Trump in a way, or just the boring Trump. I remember there's a. Um, there's a rank and file movement, um, supposedly rank and file movement in New York City of uh, building tradespeople. And um, there was a big rally in Union Square. And Cuomo was able to go there, even, even though Cuomo like, refuses to settle union contracts fairly with public sector workers, even though yeah. Cuomo is more than happy 
for a non-union development to continue in New York City and Troy and upstate and Long Island or whatever. They invited Cuomo uh, to this rally, and um, he was like a convincing in the same way that Trump is convincing when he talks about working class issues, right? He was this semi-convincing avatar of like what governance means when it brings a sort of patronage towards organized labor, um, you know, into being. But then you look at the, the difference between the Cuomo that can stand up there and say, I fight for union rights on the one hand, and then what he's doing to New York State on the other hand. It's a spectacle. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, um, yeah. I'm a delegate from the uh, UUP United University Professionals to the Troy Area Labor Council, which is one of the the ALF um, chapters. And uh, um, uh, I don't know, it's pretty different up here, where you know, like, or like in the last uh, election, um, it, we went for Cynthia Nixon, like all around the people who know Cuomo the best, like in this area, uh, <laughs> when Cynthia Nixon last time around, and um, Generally, it's it, we're also one of those like districts that went like Obama, Obama, Trump, but oh. Bernie, but Bernie in the twenty sixteen primary. Right. So it's yeah. So it's um. So the, the 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 political culture is still like corrupt as hell, but still but weird outside of like state level stuff. Like all the all the local unions uh, like have like militant streaks, but they're all but they're also you know, you'll get a Republican showing up in it and they, they hate, and they still hate Trump and it's, it's confusing. The, uh, history of Troy, New York, not that I know it very well, uh, but as I understand it, it is a strong old union town. Is that right? That entire area, right? Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to the, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of, it still has one of the highest union densities in the country. Yeah, and as I understand it too, um, a guy named Kurt Vonnegut lived there for a while, right, and wrote some of his most famous uh, texts while working at General Electric, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Vonnegut was actually, I think he lived in Schenectady and then Cohoes, which is like it um, in the same, or like is is just on the other side of the Hudson from us, in, towards Schenectady. Uh, but um, we we've also had uh, Herman Melville. Wow. Uh, and Whoa. and we're supposed to we're uh we're supposed to be the, the home of Uncle Sam. So uh all the shit that uh all the war profiteering that Uncle Sam did, he did here in the in uh the great city of Troy, New York. <laughs> uh, my favorite thing that I know about Troy, New York is that it was once called the Collar City. Have you yes. heard about this, David? It yes. was the yeah. Oh yeah, where... a lot of stuff is named the Collar City around here. Yeah, the it was the home of the detachable men's shirt collar, an item once tremendously in fashion, but no longer. <laughs> Is it yeah. there? There's an old uh, uh, women's union, right? That's based around the collar up there. Yes. Yeah, we actually uh, Iron Weeds did a whole episode on uh, Kate Mullaney and the um, the collar union that uh, um, the laundresses union, I think it's called. Uh, yeah, the um, the very first uh, all women. Uh, major union in the United States uh, started here. In fact, the, the uh, Mulaney's house is now on the National Historic Register, and uh, um, Hillary Clinton was there when uh, when they inaugurated it. Okay, our the great senator from the state of New York, famous yeah. New Yorker Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> what a travesty that was, man! Holy shit! I will admit though that in the year two thousand, my first the first so, time know, I, I ever actually voted. have a really bad connection right now, so I'm gonna hang up and call you back. All right, sure.
That's all right. I was about to I was about sure. to admit to the world that I voted for Hillary Clinton for senator. Oh, <laughs> what year was that? The year two thousand. The year two thousand. In the year two thousand. In the year two thousand. You will vote for Hillary Clinton. Oh, my God. Under the Working Families Party, when I voted for the first time for Ralph Nader, I also voted for Hillary Clinton as senator. I'm not sure what, like, right-wing Republican ghoul was being put up in the year 2000 by the Republicans, but... Well, you, you, at least you voted for it on the Working Families Party line, which really showed the Democrats that you would have preferred <laughs> something more. <laughs> I did it for the yeah. progressive for the progressive movement. <laughs> what a travesty the Working Families Party has become. If it if it ever wasn't, I'm not. I, I, my understanding, and of course, I'm referring to their endorsement of uh, Elizabeth Warren this time around in the Democratic nomination. Uh, my understanding is Working Families Party is this New York State fusion party that um, yeah. has behind it uh, the major trade unions, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's just generally uh, like a paper tiger. Like it doesn't really do anything or run candidates. It just kind of like fall, whoever falls into their lap, they might do something with. But like uh, up here, like there'll be people who, um, you know, like on New York's ballots, you can run the same person on multiple parties and you'll have uh, someone running on like the conservative party, the Republican party, the working families party and the green party. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think it's conceived as a way to take advantage of some states electoral laws to like pull Democrats to the left. But just as often it functions to pull progressives or leftists to the right. Or, or just fools them, right? You just like, you don't know what's going on. You go to the poll and you just vote down the Green Party line or something and you end up voting for a Republican. It <laughs> fooled me. It fooled me in the year 2000. I, was, I guess I was naive back then, thinking that maybe voting Hillary Clinton under the Working Families Party would pull her to the left, <laughs> as people were trying to do with, um, with Joe Biden right now. The likelihood of pulling Hillary Clinton to the left is about the same as people have pulling, quote unquote, Biden to the left. But I'm pretty I'm pretty blackpilled on uh, electoral politics at this point. Um, how much time are you guys going to spend donating and organizing for Joe Biden? <laughs> uh, I, I, I donated to like several uh, like uh, uh, senility awareness uh, <laughs> Uh, not NGOs. I don't know. Like, it seems to be the same thing. You know, like uh, you know, we need more research into Alzheimer's. Like, <laughs> I don't Thanks know. for doing whatever, your part. <laughs> whatever the negative mirror of what I donated to Bernie is. <laughs> okay. Well, the whole thing is fucked. The whole thing is fucked up now. Um, the uh, let's see. One second. Uh, do we want to? Why don't we stick with Troy? And then we'll also introduce New York City as a site of industrialization and deindustrialization. So I do want to talk about you guys' um, main sort of main sort of bag here. Um, does that sound good? Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. I hear birds in the background. That's really. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's me. I'll, I'll close the window a little bit. No, no, no. That's, <laughs> birds are fine. <laughs> yeah, I, we have a lot of birds. Congrats. Uh, <laughs> so, so David uh, has the history of labor unions and industrialization and deindustrialization. And Andy, you also look at um, at these trends in U.S. history, right? Uh, specifically in New York City. That's right. Yeah, I um, studied deindustrialization in New York City um, in the post-war era. 
it's funny because these days folks don't even think of New York City as a as an industrial powerhouse. They don't even think of New York City as what it was for most of its history, which is this kind of dynamic um, entrepot, this port city for a lot of the commerce that would come down the Hudson River from places like Troy, New York, and then go to the docks and the piers of New York City and go out to the rest of the world. That history tends to be a face now. And if there's any, if there are any of the piers left, uh, they end up being like uh, entertainment complexes or like, um, I don't know, concert shells for rich people. Yeah. You know, because New York City is so many other things at the same time, I think a lot of people don't really realize that it was, in fact, one of the major manufacturing cities in North America for well over 100 years, in addition to being the most important port in the U.S. And, the- yeah, you know. I, I know like a lot of the real estate interest, which is also huge uh, and always has been a huge industry in New York, like has wanted to get industry out of uh, New York for a long time as early as like, I think it was like the 1929 plan for for New York City. Are you for, talking like, about the regional the regional plan association? Plan yeah. of 1929. I am famously um, the centerpiece of Bob Fitch's The Assassination of New York. You took yes. the words out of my mouth. God damn, I knew I invited you guys for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us about that, David. No, is it, I mean, like, I mean you know, it's um, a plan put together uh, at, as the, the name of the organization implies, a regional scale. It's thinking about the city as like the nucleus of a much larger uh, system of m- mostly economics. That's what they're mostly concerned about is like the economic impact of uh, what the city center looks like as compared to its hinterlands. And yeah, yeah, for a long time, they wanted it turned into uh, like a, a center of business and commerce and trade, not uh, um, industry production imports. Andy, uh, talk a little bit about the unique industrial development of New York City as this um, this manufacturing hub that doesn't have a lot of the kind of uh, natural advantages of other places like in the 19th century. I'm talking specifically about like fast running streams and like large tracts of real estate that you could put like huge assembly lines on. Yeah. So that's another reason people don't really think of New York as a manufacturing town is because it doesn't resemble our, I think, most sort of our widespread cultural image of what a manufacturing city looks like. When you think about that, you think of Detroit, you think of Pittsburgh. These are like one industry towns. So in Detroit, auto, Pittsburgh, steel, um, and moreover, industries that are very capital intensive, that require a lot of space, wide open tracts, like you say, and have, you know, extensive mechanization of production. New York City industry was a little different. Um, it was characterized by smaller shops, more labor-intensive industries, um, and also um, less standardized products. So if you think about New York City was a center of like high-end cutlery, for example. Mm. So that would be an example at the high end. At the low end, you have products that are difficult to standardize but are also very labor intensive and so can be produced in relatively uh, a large variety of spatial configurations let's say so the garment industry would right. be an example of that and you still have the um, the fashion district you still have those um, industries and places in New York just on a much smaller scale these days than they used to be 
Well, and you still have, of course, a lot of major garment firms are headquartered in New York, but their clothing it has not been sewn in New York City since, in some cases, the 1920s. I mean, that's one of the things that I've written about is the decentralization of the garment industry, beginning, I think, earlier than a lot of people even think about deindustrialization. Yeah, the deindustrialization, as we kind of delve into this topic more, I think um, maybe it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. It's kind of probably for the people who are listening to this uh, show, given your age cohorts, it's probably sort of taken for granted that uh, most people now work in the tertiary sector, you know, retail or services or whatever. Whereas, you know, of course, <clears throat> what we're living through right now is kind of the end point of a 50, 60 year process of economic and technical change in the United States, where a place like Troy would have gone from being this you know, separate from New York City, uh, a manufacturing hub with large giant factories employing large portions of the local populace to now, of course, not having that on the same scale anymore. And it's interesting to look at the ways that affects communities, ultimately affects the United States and then affects world capitalism. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, like what um, Andy was saying about the uh, um the garment industry ex, you know, like exporting their their labor well before we usually think about deindustrialization, like the '70s. Uh, yeah, that's you know, like um, Cahos, which uh, which I mentioned earlier, is across the river from us. Their nickname is the less known is the Spindle City, and then over here in Troy is the Collar City, and uh, and you just like see all these different little um, specialized textile uh, production like all up and down the Hudson River. Um, and that was like the very first wave of um, uh, of uh, deindustrializing major cities is having these uh, central um, specialized smaller uh, cities that would do that would have very particular um, uh, 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 very, very they have very particular skill sets and and they would be essentially company towns for something not as big as Standard Oil or Pullman cars or or U.S. Steel. It would be for you know just like like arrow uh, um, arrow shirt collars, which was what uh, we had in Troy here. And yet, it, it would be impossible to make a a strict delineation between say the manufacturing economy of metropolitan New York City and the manufacturing economy that's happening 100 miles up the Hudson River, right? This was like a, it was part of a larger network of, of these specialty production uh, capacities that existed like across the country that would kind of feed into each other, right, to make a final product. Yeah, I mean, you have like the, the happenstance or the serendipity of, of geography, right? The Hudson River is very deep. Uh, uh, and uh, it was from the Atlantic Ocean in New York City all the way up to right here. Uh, where there you hit the confluence of the Hudson and the Mohawk rivers, and at that meeting place, there's a series of falls. So you either have to put your goods usually in a smaller uh, boat and that can go up the locks, right? Go uh, um, and then back and then further uh, north, or uh, as was you know the case with the building of the Erie Canal out west to the uh, the Great Lakes. But you had to, but it required you take uh, everything off the big boat that came in through uh, uh, the port in New York City and put it on all these smaller barges. And that's why Troy took off, is because it was a place where um, that exchange happened. And just like in Chicago, where the Chicago Stock Exchange is essentially selling 
the futures of different sorts of grains and beef and stuff, right. Troy would be a place where you would, uh, you know, re-up your insurance on your on your uh, um, on what you uh, sent out. We still have these tiny little insurance companies that are like 150 years old here. You know, so you have insurance, you have banking. We, have, you know, like our Bank of America looks like uh, it should be in a city three times the size of of ours. Um, there's uh, the the Troy save. There used to be something called the Troy Savings Bank which was like one of the more powerful banks of like the 1800s. And, um, and they were so big that they built a, like an opera house here, the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall that's still here today. And is one of like the top per- places to perform like because it's so acoustically like perfect. And that was just built up here in like nowhere, you know, <laughs> it was essentially nowhere. And it's because there was such a high concentration of wealth uh, that was really only because there were some waterfalls and some grade changes in a river. Uh, yeah. And that just started this uh, um, uh, 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 concentration of wealth based on shipping, which then eventually turned into railroads, right? Because canal, basically once they built the Erie Canal, like- <laughs> It was redundant already. <laughs> yeah, it was already redundant because like, yeah, trains would go faster and cheaper. Um, so there was a you know like really strong rail lines up here, and then um, and then with Nelson Rockefeller, who's a big big fan of the highway system, and and modern architecture more generally, like uh, attracted so many highways al- along with Robert uh, Robert Moses, uh, you know, uh, at the state level, just uh, tore this place apart with uh, um, highways. In fact, they only built like half the highways that were originally proposed because everyone here was just so was so like highway happy that even like the Eisenhower administration was like, whoa, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, David's right. It really all begins with water transport. The Erie Canal is kind of like this or moment for the industrialization of New York City. And it's like what vaulted New York City ahead of its one-time colonial rivals along the eastern seaboard and right. made it kind of the the collection point for the industrialization of a whole section of the country. But just to give you an example, Sean, of the kind of regional connections you were talking about, like you can think of a city like Kingston, which is about an, an hour south of Troy. Is that right, David? Yeah, yeah. And the, 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 the first capital of, of New York. <laughs> that, is, that is correct. Yes. That's a piece uh... of trivia. Funky Kingston, as uh, many, many reggae songs will we'll sing about. Yeah. yeah, they're talking about that Kingston. Yeah, yeah, but, the, you know, it's it, Kingston's a really interesting city because the industrialization of Kingston relies on this water transport as well. So Kingston was a transfer point for coal coming from the coal fields of northeastern Pennsylvania, which would be shipped by canal to Kingston and then down the Hudson to fuel New York City. Um, At the same time, Kingston had its own sort of small garment industry. But beginning in the 20s and especially with the New Deal, the passage of the Wagner Act and the strength that gave to the garment unions in New York City, Kingston became a destination for what were called in the labor movement runaway shops. Runaway so, shops. So, yeah. like David was saying, like anywhere where you have like empty storefronts and a lot of desperate unemployed people becomes a destination for these runaway shops. So the the garment firm would still be headquartered in New York. However, its garments would actually be sewn in a place like Kingston. And in an interesting sort of feedback loop. 
the coal used to come from northeastern Pennsylvania. It's called anthracite or hard coal. It's actually that's different. that good coal. Yeah, it's that's that good coal. It's actually cleaner burning and has more energy than the soft coal, which is more prominent cop, today. Cop shit. But anthracite uh, went out of style and northeastern Pennsylvania was like one of the first places in the United States to actually deindustrialize. And this is like during and after the First World War. Mm. So, I mean, this is deindustrialization going all the way back. What happened, though, was all of these wives and daughters of unemployed coal miners, the garment factory owners found out that you could drive the fabric from New York City to northeastern Pennsylvania overnight, have it sewn the next day, and have it trucked back to New York City. So you have like a 24, 48-hour turnaround, and the labor rates are until the unions get in are like you know half of what you're paying in New York City. So you have all of these regional connections and feedbacks. Fascinating. This is this is why a lot of the the issues and problems that uh, people identify correctly with the globalization of capitalist production over the last 40, 50 years is merely the internationalization of processes that began as early as industrial capitalism arose. Uh, if you Have you guys ever read um, Jefferson Cowie's uh, Capital Moves? Yeah. It's about uh, one company, RCA. You know, they made phonographs and other sort of electronics. And it tracks their movement their runaway shops uh, from when they started in Camden, New Jersey, the turn of the 20th century, out to Indiana, and then finally down into Mexico by the 1990s with uh, with NAFTA. Uh, and it shows this process that I think Andy very eloquently outlined, where capital moves, capital flees, uh, based on a lot of factors, of course, but the main one, of course, is labor costs. And not just how expensive the labor is in a particular place, but how pliable it is. How Another way to say that, how ununionized it is, right? How abject yeah. it is, how exploitable it is. Yeah. yeah. I think, sorry, you go in. No, 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 go ahead. No, I, I think that the only, and it's a pretty small, uh, like, asterisk to, to that is, you know, if, and this is, but I think it's becoming larger, is, you know, if the uh, labor itself is fetishized in some way, like, if, if you say, like, it is from a specific place that mm. has, like, a brand name, essentially, right? Like, uh, um, I like talking about Brooklyn-flavored foods, Right, or like you, you, you know, even up here, you you'll see something that has like Brooklyn on the label, uh, and it, but it's like mayonnaise or pickles or something, and it's like, well, there's no like essential Brooklyn flavor to mayonnaise. Like, why is Brooklyn so prominently on this label? And it, and it has something to do with, you know, how uh, 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 the the association of a place to a product makes can make you sell it for more for much more than you would normally be able to. Andy Battle's got his next uh, research project. He's going to do a critical anthropology of uh, Brooklyn hipster uh, pickle maker manufacturing. Hell yeah. Oh, my, oh my God. That yeah. would be sick. Where are the archives for that? <laughs> <laughs> They're being created as we speak. Right. The archives in the yeah. streets, my friend. Yeah, that's a project for an anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> so deindustrialization isn't this new process, but I think that today and I don't want to like jump to the present moment, but it seems to me that 
Um, it came and went in phases. You had these runaway shops. You had these processes of industrialization and then deindustrialization and the movement of capital and jobs to different places. It seems like now because of you could call the high organic composition of capital um, or just the maturity of the capitalist economy. If you look at a place like Troy, New York, and if you look at a place like Brooklyn, New York, or you look at Indianapolis, you know, you look at Oklahoma, even Mexico in, in many cases, there doesn't seem to be these industrial jobs coming back. Um, it seems like um, the, this globalization process has kind of reached and, – and also this um, – this, the, the productive forces have reached a point where um, capital is not looking necessarily, except for, I guess, hipster uh, pickle makers, is looking for American labor in order to exploit now in these uh, production processes. In industrial production processes. Yeah, you know, I, th I think that's right. And there's, you know, like something really, I guess we'll get theoretical for a second here, is that, you know, the... Um, you think about like you know we usually talk about deindustrialization as almost like like a natural occurrence or like an like a an event like a meteor hit and all of a sudden like all the jobs move to Mexico and China like we like we don't really talk about at least often enough like why that happened and we and you we begin to touch on it with the fact that you know uh, capital always looks for to sink cap to sink money into wherever the labor is cheapest. Right. Uh, and that has, you know, it's, it's a very specific uh, uh, political move, right, to, to strengthen the political power of capital over labor. Um, but there's uh, on top of that, you know, um, there's always these interesting fights amongst capital, right? Mm -hmm. like different capitalists fight each other. You know, like it's but at the end of the day, you know, it's just, you know, it's just different teams on the same uh, league, right? You know, it's like you know they'll still drink scotch together afterward, but you know, like they do have fights over, like you know, um, some really antithetical interests. And one of them that was most recently highlighted really well by Samuel Stein in his book Capital City that came out, ah, uh, yes, like a we, year ago. We had him on the show uh, yeah, to really, talk about that. Really, really, really good book. Yeah, really, really excellent book. And he makes this point that you know, um, manufacturing capitalists that own manufacturing actually have a few interests that are at loggerheads with uh, like financial ca uh, financial capital right financial capitalists mostly in what we in what we call the fire industries right like finance insurance and real estate and um, and the big one is that you know we've been talking about these factories that are really big right and even in New York City while they're not like as big as uh, you know like a like the Dearborn factory in uh, in Michigan, right? They are um, they are significant, right? And they take up a lot of space and they're noisy, right? Like they they don't make great neighbors and maybe they're smelly, but um, uh, and and so and that actually depress that depresses property values and the the industrial capitalist wants low property values for two reasons: one, because you need a lot of space for your factory. So you want to buy that as cheaply as possible, but also it's labor intensive. And so you want your workers to not have to pay a lot in rent. Because, so that means you can pay them less in, in wages. Right. Uh, and that comes directly against the interests of the finance capitalist who uh, wants to use real estate and land as an investment vehicle. Right. And those, um, and so they, they only benefit when land prices get higher and higher. 
and uh and not only like it has to reach some critical point but that it it the delta is what matters right it has to keep appreciating in value and it basically has to like beat the stock market right like if you talk to any economic development planner in any city right now and you say like you know like how do you incentivize building right it's because it, you they they'll take out a, a you know like an excel spreadsheet and say i need to make it like uh, um, I need to make this developer enough money that they would make more money building than just investing it in an index fund in the stock market. Right. And that, that and that's and see and so like uh, it, pushing industry out of the way um, uh, lets the finance industry take over and use uh, the um, the land however they say fit to to raise prices and beat the market uh, in uh, in like stocks or something. So that that's. Um, you know the, uh, that that so it's not a coincidence that industrial deindustrialization coincides with the rise of financialization to the point that today something like a quarter of our economy is wrapped up in just like you know fake ponzi money schemes uh, but, uh devised by coked out weirdos on wall street <laughs> yeah, yeah. And th- which is why um you know going back to bob fitch why he can put that um regional plan association map out there and basically talk about it as though it's a battle plan uh, that one fraction of capital is using against another fraction of capital in this attempt to commercialize and financialize and ultimately gentrify New York City, uh, a plan that happens to succeed over many decades. Yeah, and it also really deeply shapes the politics of the city because once those factories are gone, Politicians are left with virtually no other option except to rely on ever skyrocketing real estate values as the source of the city's tax base. So gentrification becomes like a fait accompli, at, politically speaking, at some point. Yeah, you have to gentrify or your your economy dies. And this is actually what um, uh, 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 John Logan and Harvey Mollich talk about in like this this book that's been reprinted I think like half a dozen times called the Urban Growth Machine mm. uh, or sorry the Urban Fortunes and they have this thing called the Urban Growth Machine in it that essentially is what Andy just described where every single thing about municipal government is toward growing the city either financially or physically, right? Like making the the physical city bigger, adding more people, or just generating and circulating more money. And that's the only thing that powerful people can agree on now is is uh, is feeding that growth machine and raising property values and, and creating more economic activity at the expense of nearly everything else. And the intersection of these interests is why as NAFTA is being signed in the 1990s, as the trickle of industrial jobs uh, turns into a flood out of the United States in that period, you have a guy, an urban theorist like Richard Florida, who could go out and talk about the the new city, new urbanism, uh, the creative class um, building a sort of yuppie hipster utopia in every single city around the country because it's in its own way a solution to a problem caused by the flip side, the obverse side of capitalist like underdevelopment, right, or deindustrialization. Yeah, and you know, new urbanism is actually an invention of Florida. The first new uh, proper new urbanist community uh, served as the backdrop of the Truman Show. It's called Seaside Florida. 
and that's actually what was produced was the background of of the Truman Show. So it's like really, it's like un, uncanny valley levels of <laughs> like authenticity, um, and, and 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 it's no mistake that new urbanism or uh, any sort of like new regime of finance capital came out of the South because before uh, a lot of um, uh, industry jobs fled. Uh, the country, they fled the city, right, which we've been talking about. And a lot of them went to the so-called New South, right, right. Uh, where there's no labor laws or few la- fewer labor laws and, um, and cheap land, right? And, uh, and, and that was also a move to uh, whiten the workforce a great deal. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the new, the, that book, uh, The New Jim Crow, talks about this, that before um, uh, uh, jobs were sent overseas, they were sent to um, these like unincorporated counties in the South that usually gave those jobs to uh, the white working class. Yeah, uh, was one of the garment factories I studied, uh, the shops moved from New York City to Northeastern Pennsylvania, to Southern Alabama in the Florida Panhandle, and from then on to Haiti, the rest of the Caribbean, and then East Asia and worldwide. There you go. What's over the course of what a hundred years or so? Yeah, probably like over the course of even shorter, like fifty, sixty, seventy years. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just industry uh, um, that New York is known for, including brewing, right? So like McSorley's Ale House, the longest running bar in in the North America or something, whatever they, their claim to fame is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they used to brew it on site, and then they and then like, I think in like the mid twentieth century, it moved uh, to some offsite location in a different borough, and then it um, and then it was eventually bought by Pabst, um, and so then it becomes this like just one brand among many. Right? Uh, there's there's two there's two giant brewing conglomerates right yeah. now. Uh, like Ambev, I think, is one of them, and yeah, they own like pretty much like ninety percent of world beer production, like yeah. the most kind of concentrated industry that exists, I think. Yeah, and that I mean that kind of gets me into some of the sort of uncanny effects that I think about at the neighborhood level in New York City. So it's like Bushwick, a neighborhood where many young creative types live today, was once home to like I believe a dozen breweries. And it like all up and down Bushwick Avenue, you have these once grand mansions of the German beer barons that have now been chopped up into apartments. And so I just think it's really funny how like we live our lives and we're like taught to admire the style of and feel that it's authentic somehow, like the the disused shells of these former rounds of capital accumulation become like the places where we live our lives. Right, right. We're living in the detritus of like a previous regime of production. Yeah. And then, go ahead. Oh, and then like those styles, I just think it's really interesting how they become sort of autonomous in themselves. Like I was walking around my neighborhood the other day like I walk around and look for what look like they used to be factories and then look them up or whatever it's like a pretty dorky pastime eh, as but, one <laughs> <laughs> and so I like was passing by uh, in uh, one street near my house uh, used to be apparently well known for having several shoe factories on it um, beginning in the late 19th century through let's say the 1940s or 50s 
And I came across this one building and I'm like, oh, this has got to be another shoe factory. So I take a picture because it has the sort of industrial loft style. So I take a picture of it and I look it up and I'm like, oh, I wonder when this was built, like 1889, like 1902. It was built in 2015. <laughs> so, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's like basically the architects now like will ape the factory architecture like, of the turn of the 20th century in order to provide like a simulacrum of loft living, you know, <laughs> to, so, like, to, to such detail that a, his, to the historian of that era thinks that it's like a, a perfect uh, representation of something from 100 years ago. That's incredible. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, we, we, we would about kill for that build. <laughs> and the, you know, the 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 difference, of course, between like the amount per square foot you can get for a shoe factory, uh, and what you could get for uh, you know residential real estate right now is absolutely incredible. Oh, I mean, this is yeah. Oh, go ahead. It's, uh, it's something really fitting is that like the building across the street, another an actual old factory i looked up what it's used for today and it's like people don't even live in it it's actually just used for photo shoots and film sets <laughs> so you just want to add another level of simulacra <laughs> the, uh, um, there's actually a um little known um industry up here is uh and that was started uh with um, Cuomo, I think in his first administration, is that he was certain that he could turn this area into a cheap place to film, especially for like historical dot, uh, historical movies, uh, where you need a place that looks like uh, New York City from the 1900s. Mm. Did it work? Uh, well, let's see. We got um, uh, that shitty movie, The Time Machine, has a couple of exterior shots um, uh, uh, in Troy, and then there was also. Um, uh, well before that, uh, there was actually the, the movie that um, our uh, um, is based on a book that our podcast is named after, Ironweed, that uh, stars uh, Jack Nicholson and um, Meryl Streep. Um, that was filmed in Albany. Real, uh, it's actually a great movie, but it came out at the same time as a bunch of other blockbusters and no one watched uh. it. But uh, there's actually one scene where they... Um, uh, there's a there was a massive streetcar union strike around here. It was a solidarity strike, actually, with um, uh, I believe it was newspaper. I don't remember what, what it was a solidarity strike with, but, uh, but they could just shut down like, like four cities all, all at once. Uh, and that's what they were doing. And, uh, and there's a part in the, in the movie and in the book where, um, they have a scab, uh, driving a trolley, uh, and, um, uh, and the, the state police, uh, mow down a bunch of, uh, um, protesting, uh, striking workers, uh, and the new the actual New York State Police volunteered to be those police officers in the movie shooting at the traffic. <laughs> oh my god! So wow. those are actual New York State uh, police officers. So it's another dream. way that you know, like, you know, simulacres all over the place. Or was I use a Zizek voice? You know, like first as tragedy, second as farce. You know, but. Uh, um, and in, in another vein of that, um, to stick with brewing, is also Brooklyn Brewery um, started with like a small warehouse in technically in Brooklyn, but um, a lot of the brewing was closer to me than it was to the city, uh, mostly because they were the one of the first wave gentrifiers and were terrified of you know of working there, so well, they, I, uh, yeah. they 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 would 
brew it up, up state and then distribute it uh, yeah. down south. Well, I, for one, truly hope that uh, one of the many after effects of this corona crisis uh, is an end of peak Brooklyn. I think hopefully we've hit peak Brooklyn and I hope it's going down now because, you know, we, this is a there's a borough where, you know, two million people live more 2.5 million maybe. And uh, we don't need to be um, tyrannized by the uh, gentrified dreams of the Richard Floridas of the world and the uh, simulacrum um, shoe factory real estate developers. You know, this is a real place with real people who need real jobs or real cheap places to live. Yeah, They're I don't I mean, I, I think some people wonder if there will be a, a devaluation of some kind of where like people, you know, of course, the 1970s in New York are like this touch point and like you fall on one side or another of it, depending on your politics, like any time anything happens in new york like the new york post and the daily news will scream like we're going back to the 70s and that's like a right. dog whistle to his particular kind of white person. um but like the 1970s are also this time of like great nostalgia and longing even and maybe especially among people who didn't live through it <laughs> um because it was this time where it was possible to live in a city like new york and get all of the the advantages of urban living in terms of like creativity, conviviality, um, without the absolutely punishing financial consequences that that make that almost impossible for an artist to do today. Right, right. Um, the seventies weighs like a nightmare on the brains of so many people today. One of the, the lesser talked about aspects of it is this deindustrialization is this movement of jobs and i i think specifically of um of course there's fear city in the 1970s and the 1980s there's all the social pathologies that come out of that uh somebody mentioned uh the new jim crow uh you know it's a, it's a deep historical irony and tragedy ultimately that just as uh cotton picking is being industrialized in the south and like the right after the second world war in the, in the 40s and 50s and huge populations of largely african americans are coming to urban areas in the north and the midwest and out west uh, at the same time the good union factory jobs that existed in those places that people were moving for this great migration was trying to grasp for uh, those jobs start to go away so so much so many of like what we call so much of what we call the urban crisis and these pathologies that arise in this deep dark era of the 70s 80s and early 90s come directly out of these processes of deindustrialization the loss of good jobs and in places like Troy New York I'm sure that there were kind of analogs to what happened in New York City right Oh absolutely yeah I mean, you know actually before we go up to Troy um, I, I, this is, it's really serendipitous. I was, I was just reading, uh, Sharon Zukin's Loft Living, which is a, like a really excellent book about New York in the seventies, uh, and Soho in particular, and what social factors made it possible for a bunch of artists to live in these, uh, um, light manufacturing and textile, uh, lofts, uh, in Soho or what would become Soho. Uh, and just to give a taste of like how cheap it was uh, to, to live there, um, at the time, an acceptable market rent for a one to three bedroom apartment for a middle-class Manhattanite was 300 to $450. The average rent for living a loft 
1977 was just under four hundred dollars. Damn. Now, so like that, and then the the benefit of a four hundred dollar uh, loft in Manhattan was that why uh, the, well the downside is that like you might not have heat or hot water at night because the landlord will shut it off because technically you're not supposed to be living there. But um, but on the on the upside, you you had imagine having like a fifteen hundred square feet <laughs> in New York in the center of Manhattan. You know, right. it's like for yeah. four hundred dollars a month. I I remember having a fight um, with someone in a higher education union of which I was once a member. Um, so like a lot of the sort of longtime tenured professors will um, say and a tenured professor is a job that is going away, you know, oh, that yeah. no longer exists. And as the the industry and higher education as an industry moves towards adjunct work, which is like part time, uh, temporary and eminently fireable work. But um, you will sometimes hear people say, uh, you know, it, it wasn't so bad. Like I adjuncted for a couple years in the early 80s, you know, and my, my salary was only X, Y, Z. And then you look it up and like what the cost of living in New York City was right. in the late 1970s and the early 80s was like 25% of what it is today. So it's right. like, yeah, you didn't make that much money, but like in a relative sense, you made way, way more. I mean, I saw an article today that was just like, millennials are the lost generation. And I just can't even count the number of ways in which that is coming true. Oh yeah, big time. Um, Troy, New York, what happened in the 70s uh, up, in, up, in the, um, up in the Hudson Valley? Yeah, so we had, yeah, we, uh, I, we uh, like I said earlier, we got hit hard by highways, um, urban renewal, which is the process by which, you know, like city, uh, city leaders say, like, you know, a whole swath of the city is unsalvageable. And, uh, and so it has to be completely demolished and something else has to be built. Um, uh, happened a lot. The uh, Although some places were saved mostly by like the local elite who appreciated the sort of Victorian uh, styling of the buildings. And, you know, like, well, I can't afford a, you know, like a, a, a three-story brownstone in Park Slope, but I can in Troy. So, you you know, you, you, they, the whole downtown or a large portion of it was put on the historic register, um, I think by the 90s. But, uh, uh, but that was mainly because the the downtown had been had a few narrow misses with uh, 787, the the local highway around here, um, uh, was almost set to go straight through uh, the downtown. And if you look at a lot of the master plans around this area, you know it's um, there was just the the name of the game was getting these really big art, ramming these huge arterial roads straight down. Uh, downtowns, uh, usually to to obliterate like whatever black owned businesses were in the area. Like that was it just happened to be where the highway had to go. Right. Um, uh, and uh, and what you, what you end up with is um, you know like what we were uh, what Andy was talking about about like you know like buildings that, that look like uh, they were built in 1900s but were built in 2015. Um, today you, you know like we like. This, local leaders would commit ritual suicide to get like that level of build quality of that kind of building. Um, uh, it's all, it, a lot of it is very speculative. A lot of the, um, 
developers up here are from Philadelphia, Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, and New York City, mainly Brooklyn. And what they come with is like these these uh, portfolios of, of construction that you know say like Troy can can be the new Brooklyn. In fact, there was you know like several local newspapers. Uh, have that on there with not a hint of irony, right? Mm. It's just like, like this, this is a good thing that, you know, like we'll, you know, like we'll have a, a 30% poverty rate, but uh, you can get oysters, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and that's a, and so it's, it's it, this is such a robust phenomenon, right? That of uh, deindustrialization breeds this uh, economy based on finance, speculative finance and, uh, um, uh, the experience of, of like, uh, of, um, authenticity, you know, like that, um, like that it's just, it's just formulaic in how that happens that, uh, no matter where it is. And I've been to like Huntsville, Alabama, and there's like a coffee shop that looks exactly like the one up here. Right. Because like, there's this like sort of universalized interior design and like post-industrial aesthetic that takes the place of more stable economies. Yes. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not commented upon uh, too much. But there is this sort of nostalgic um, aesthetic that arises directly out of the uh, detritus of like this former period, and then becomes this sort of simulacrum that that continues on. That's fascinating stuff. And yeah, we we had a bar down here called the Shop. It's a great story. That was um, in the um, the old building that housed a, a hardware store that lasted for a hundred years. It was, and it, it, the 2008 economic crisis finally, uh, felled it. And, um, uh, and they took all of the like yard sticks that say like Trojan hardware on it. And like, and they basically festooned the, the building, the interior of this bar with all of these old timey hardware store things. And then like, the the like the taps on the bar are like screwdrivers and shit <laughs> that you pull and um it was and it was a way to consume like old timiness mm. without like actually having to go buy anything from a hardware store you could just like be around the the totems of of like a small town hardware store and um uh and and in it was almost predictable, I think, that that bar eventually got done in by um, one of the few that I know of, like, organized um, uh, 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 quitting of all the staff. Hmm. The entire staff quit all at once because the owner was such a shit. <laughs> it was great. Then he just came in one day and there was, like, written on the on the chalkboard, like, do better. And, they, and just all their aprons were on the floor. They're, like, just all gone. <laughs> and they never – they could never read <laughs> All of their 19th century butcher's aprons. <laughs> all, 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 their, all their handlebar mustaches. Are yeah, like, yeah. They snipped them off and left them on the counter. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is interesting the way that these sort of real estate capitalists um, encourage us to reach for these kind of totems of perceived authenticity. Like, I don't know why just because something existed in the 19th century is more authentic than what exists now. I think what's going on now is actually what's important. Um, yeah. But, like, I think the, the, the role that, like, the consciousness of the past real or invented plays in contemporary capital accumulation is like a really interesting thing to think about at the same time there are like really are limits on the abilities of these smaller cities to be another new york or another san francisco like new york san francisco 
the major cities in the United States are trading on now centuries worth of existing advantages in infrastructure um, that is never going to be matched by Huntsville, Alabama. So it's like right. I think it becomes a zero sum game at some point. And, and not and not talked about is that in order to have the kind of plethora of you know, decent paying service sector jobs that would allow somebody to live in Brooklyn or allow somebody to live in, uh, I was going to say San Francisco, but that's not even true anymore. I uh, live in Los Angeles, right? You have to have the kind of like overspill uh, from capital accumulation elsewhere within the economy, which is to say like you can sustain a huge like artisanal hipster service sector in Brooklyn, in New York City, uh, because there's so much money in Manhattan, in finance, in media, in real estate, and whatever, a place like Huntsville, Alabama, doesn't have like the tax base or even like the uh, other employment base in order to have this kind of niche consumerist um, authenticity market that that other larger cities have. Yeah, you know, they're, they're although they're, in some ways they do have a competitive advantage. These smaller cities do to to larger ones, and this is actually the premise of a book project that I'm uh, in the latter stages of getting a contract for. But uh, the, the sneak peek of that is that, you know, like these smaller cities do offer the option to be like the the good thrift store find to New York City's like game <laughs> brand, right? And they can, they can always do something w- uh, where they can um, uh, come off as a more approachable um, version of this authentic urban living. And I think with um, uh, the pandemic, this is going to become increasingly more important that uh, these, uh, as people try to flee the city, because now, like, you know, like, I, I think this was on Dumb and Awful or something, like someone was saying how, you know, like, what's the point of living in New York City if I can't go out, right? Like, right. The point of living in a, in a major city, why would you pay New York City rents if you can't you know, do anything that is only found in New York City, right? So uh, I, you can uh, um, expect probably like a, a, a some sort of um, uh, uh, migration out of larger cities if that's the case, if just for something cheaper and maybe similar. And so I, I think we're we're I, you know I don't I, I shy away from predicting the future, but you know like it seems like the conditions are right for another like dispelling from big cities into into smaller ones yeah. inshallah inshallah it's happened <laughs> in a miniature version already just in the last two months as neighborhoods like the upper east side the upper west side the east village have lost as much as 40 percent of their population during the pandemic and where do they go they go to the hudson valley they go to the hamptons if you're really rich some of them go to Florida, but I think you're already seeing sort of conflicts in those towns, at least judging from the news reporting that you see. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is like those Hudson Valley towns are deeply connected economically to New York City. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. without the tourism, um, they would be in a much worse off place. So you have this kind of combination of dependence and resentment. I guess that's not a very unusual combination at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's emerging in miniature, at least. And I don't predict the future either, but it's, it's, it's plausible to think. 
What do you think, David? What would be the effects if um, if you lost the hordes of uh, sob driving tourists that came up to gawk at your post industrial landscape up there? <laughs> yeah, it would it would be a, a, a total disaster. Like the the our our downtown is a um, is a playground, right? Designed in the style of like a Richard Florida sort of development scheme, which. Uh, um, We've mentioned a couple times, but I'll just like sort of describe very briefly is, you know, the the idea that um, it was it was a really beautiful lie that uh, Richard Florida from Pittsburgh and now in Toronto um, uh, told uh, city leaders that you don't need to raise taxes and do all these like hard uh, uh, unpopular things to get your city uh, working right. All you need to do is um, is festoon it with all of these um, cultural markers that draw what he calls the cultural class, professional managerial class kind of people uh, that wear thick glasses and stuff and uh, and like pickle martinis or whatever right and um, uh, and and you bring those and they and they can work from wherever usually and so they'll come and uh, spend their uh, their cash on on frivolous things, and you can just provide those frivolous things and those and that new entrance of uh, um, well-off creative types will balance your budgets. Uh, and he sold that all around the world, and it's a it's an idea that actually has its roots in like the London um, Common Council's. Uh, uh, Sub, there's like the subcommittee on, on cultural affairs immediately after World War II, where they start to realize that like, well, instead of like all these like adorable like fairs and like knitting circles that are happening, like what if we we as a government like really fostered those things and actually tried to create small businesses out mm-hmm. of all of these um, uh, crafts and 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 hobbies, and like we could, you could actually reorganize the city. Around like uh, um, like a new kind of cottage industry, and um, uh, and but then that that uh, after Margaret Thatcher came to power, that sort of got pushed out and actually incubated in Australia for a long time before also going to the United States, and then eventually you get like these Richard Florida types that could sort of invert almost invert it and say that you act all, all your indi- all your city needs are these like. Uh, uh, service industry jobs, uh, and even um, Florida himself, in a book that came out, I think, 2015 or 16, admitted that this is, you know, uh, yeah, he recanted on it. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. His latest book is called The New Urban Crisis, and it basically says I, I was completely wrong. And he outlines essentially what Andy was describing: that these city, that the big cities just work at a different level. And they get more of the benefits, and smaller cities really, really don't. Yeah, I just think it's funny that like Richard Florida will, or once did, advise your small city on how to like suck a little bit of that money out of New York. But like because we're talking about the finance industry here, New York is a place that just sucks money out of the rest of the country right. and from across the world <laughs> in the form of all kinds of pernicious, you know, debt-like phenomenon that we talk about. It's just like a chain of parasitic uh, rentier relationships that end up in Troy, New York at the end, I guess. Um, we need to talk about, because this is important, whether it's New York City uh, in this period of deindustrialization that we saw, or certainly 
upstate New York and environs that are like that. <clears throat> what happens to the good working class union jobs that existed? Or we know that those jobs go away, right? But what happens to the pre-existing working classes in these particular areas? So, Andy, tell us a bit about the, the transition of New York from a uh, from an urban area with a large light manufacturing uh, dynamic industry into what it is today. And then David will talk about what uh, horrific things end up replacing these industrial jobs in upstate New York. Absolutely. Um, you know, the thing that in New York City that became a salve for um, a short amount of time was public sector employment. So the public sector in New York City um, became a, a, a bastion of a kind of black middle class that exists in New York City. Um, there were limits to that, however, because one thing that, that happened upon deindustrialization was, one, an expansion of the public sector. Um, Two, at the same time, the social movements of the 1960s wrought a great democratization in politics at all scales from the municipal to the national, um, resulting in greater pressure for social safety net spending. So the Great Society is the, the name you know, that you could give to that. Um, however, with the deteriorating tax base in New York City combined – with the increased demands on the public sector, what you had was a situation where the city tried to cover this gap by borrowing. Uh, and that only worked for about 10 or 20 years until the creditors lost faith that the city would be able to pay back this money. And that's when you get the famous or infamous New York City fiscal crisis. Um, yeah. And the, the book to, that everyone should read about that is Kim Phillips' fine Fear City, which came out oh, yeah. a couple of years ago. Definitely. Um, what about uh, upstate, David? What happened up there? Yeah, so um, have you ever watched uh, Castle Rock on Hulu? No. It's based no. on like, um, it's like a, a, a mishmash of all the different Stephen King properties, like all in one like <laughs> mid-tier television show. The it's, Stephen it's, it's King Extended Universe? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um uh, and there's in the I think it's in the very first episode actually. Um, you know, it, it centers around um, a prison, uh, and, and um, it's Shawshank. Uh, this prison guard, who's one of the main characters, is asked like, "Why do you work at Shawshank if you think it's so terrible and so awful?" And he says, "Do you think I would work at Shawshank if um, there were a Walmart here?" It's and it, it just like it, he just throws that at them like real like all of a sudden and I like kind of leapt out of my seat. It was like wow, that's oh. like you rarely hear that that line, but it, and it's like actually something that a lot of people decide to do is that like they 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 work at a prison that um, ha if they weren't working there they would probably end up doing something that would put them in prison. Like these are right. really really depressed towns, um, and up here. Um, uh, uh, prisons have actually become a center of uh, a centerpiece, really, of economic revitalization. Is that the state uh, and uh, private um, contractors will build prisons in uh, response to closing factories? 
See, they uh, say that capitalism can't solve social problems, but you create a massive um, surplus population of working class people who can no longer work uh, in these manufacturing industries. Uh, and then you police them to the point where you can start to create new jobs elsewhere uh, of uh, giant prison complexes all over uh, upstate New York. It's brilliant. Remarkable. That's that's exactly right. Mass incarceration effectively w addressed deindustrialization in two places at once, you know, by policing its victims in New York City and giving people in these devastated upstate, upstate towns jobs as the guards. Uh, me and a colleague wrote about this in, um, in Strike Wave, excellent publication, everyone should read Strike Wave, but, um, uh, that, um, that we actually don't... We built, we overproduced prison beds. We have an overproduction in the Marxist sense of prison beds uh, to the point that um, the state actually has sh already shuttered 17 prisons. And, but it also hasn't spent like nearly half of the $82 million it put aside for communities uh, as remuneration for closing their jail. So like, even when we do close jails, which is always a good thing to be, and to be celebrated, um, you know, like those communities, though, still lose like their major uh, um, employer and the state usually does not um, put like replace it, even if they have money set aside to do so. They're uh, Andy, they're working to close Rikers right now, right? Yeah, they are. Um, yeah, I mean, there and there are scholars who are doing some great work on mass incarceration as a development strategy, especially in New York State. I'm thinking about people like Jack Norton and Andrea Morrill, who wrote about Elmira, which is in a different part of New York State, but has become one of the, the biggest prison towns in New York. Yeah, there's a college there. A buddy of mine from high school went to Elmira College. I, I knew it for its higher education, but I guess it's got the growth industry of uh, imprisonment, too. Yeah. This yeah, is, I mean, around, this is around dark, here, man. This is, yeah. <laughs> around, around here, the main, um, still the, the main employers are the state, hospitals, and universities, I think, in that order. And that, that's largely the case in, like, the few, like the, like, the five biggest cities outside of New York City in New York State are usually uh, employed by hospitals and universities because only really because those are hard things to move. Right. Well, that's, that's one interesting aspect of, uh, my, my union and my industry, which is construction is that in places like New York city and, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Boston, blah, 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 all the old, uh, industrial hubs, um, one of the, the, the few strong unions that remain are the building trades unions. And the reason for that isn't just that like we're more badass or like, like our, uh, our skills are better than other workers had been in other industries. It's that you can't outsource construction and you can only actually change the composition of that industry so much. You can only automate so much before you're not doing construction anymore. So like there are these jobs that uh, cannot be sent somewhere else, that cannot be eliminated from the landscape. And, uh, you know, public sector jobs, which I guess a, a prison is, unless it's private, but uh, prison jobs were, were a solution because they had to, had to happen in a particular place, right? They had to employ a certain amount of people in a certain particular process of, uh, of the carceral state. Yeah, and if you can control entry into the which is the first principle of all craft unions, then you got leverage. There you go. 
too bad the um, what should we call it? Uh, the CO unions, the uh, aren't more militant. Too bad the corrections officers don't have more militant left-wing unions. We could probably use them right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have not played a good role politically uh, for the last couple decades. Imagine like an alternate history where there's just like a, a like a, a syndicalist fucking corrections officers union fighting for prison abolition from within the prisons. That'd be sick. For some reason, consciousness didn't work that way. Yeah, for some reason. You know, that, that actually reminds me that you know, um, up here in Rensselaer County, the county that um, Troy is in, uh, our sheriff, who's run uh, unopposed multiple times on the Republican and Green Party and like a dozen other party <laughs> lines. Um, that's true. I think he did run on the Green Party. Nice. Um, he, um, uh, uh, he is the only sheriff in the state and one of the few really in the whole country that um uh uh participates in what's called the 287g agreement which allows um sheriff's deputies to be um deputized by ice oh wow okay uh and uh and so what they do is uh if you are um uh detained uh, they have two, I think it's two officers in the Rensselaer County Jail that will go look up to see what, you know, like what your papers uh, and your status looks like. Uh, and then they'll illegally detain you further in order to try to do that. Um, and then they ship you out to usually uh, Batavia, which is near out near Buffalo. Um, so it's a um, and, and the way the, the, the sheriff, his name's uh, Russo, Sheriff Russo, um, uh sold this to the community although he didn't sell it at all tried to do it and in fact i think it was only last week he renewed it for another year without like any public input whatsoever uh, but um the way when he is in the rare occasions that he is asked to defend it he says it brings in federal money uh, which is true um unless of course it's actually uh, um uh, unless of course you're actually detaining people um, at any considerable rate, in which case uh, a lot of cities, um, including almost all of Georgia, uh, get out of the program as quickly as possible because you get cost overruns of millions of dollars on top of like, you know, like your soul dying and you going to hell for all eternity. <laughs> your, your city is also bankrupt. Right. Uh, yeah. I've got a as we kind of round things out, um, I, I've got a little pet peeve that I have with, with a lot of people on the left. And I'm not talking about like the liberal left. I'm talking about the actual socialist left um, who in their minds, uh, they, they want to bring back through, I suppose, industrial policy and trade policy, um, a return of the kind of great manufacturing that we saw in the United States in the post-war period. They want to kind of recreate that. And they think that this is like the key in the 21st century to returning to some sort of social democratic politics is to have the same jobs back. You guys study deindustrialization. Is there any way or is there any sense that uh, what we saw uh, with the movement of these jobs out could be reversed and we could return to like a, uh, a an America that's great again in terms of manufacturing? Andy, why don't you start? Um, I tend to think it is not possible to turn back the clock in the way that you suggest. Um, for one, as long as there's wage disparity, the ease of ocean transport makes it possible to produce a good virtually anywhere and sell it anywhere. And as long as there's wage disparity, you're going to see capital flowing to where the costs are the least. Moreover, if capital were compelled to um, stay in the United States, 
there's nothing to say that they would not turn to mechanization as an alternative strategy. So those are two sort of, I think, obstacles. Um, and a third one would be that I, 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 there are other people who could speak in a much more educated way than me to this, but the idea of turning back the clock on 40 years of financial globalization, I think, is maybe not one that is workable. Fair enough. David, what do you think? Yeah, I, I completely agree with uh, with Andy on that, that um, you can't... Uh, one, like, what are you really romanticizing when you romanticize mid-century uh, union uh, industrial capitalism is like, you know, like, it's still capitalism. Uh, and and there was a, a lot of artificial scarcity of labor in that moment. You know, what do you mean by that? It's like, you know, black people are not allowed to participate in the formal economy. Uh, women are not allowed economy. But even if we turn back the clock in some way and like everything else magically kind of snapped back to the same thing, we would still have way, way, way more people in the workforce than we did then. Right. And we wouldn't. And, and like, I, I just I, I don't think the numbers work out in like making making that that work in any conceivable way. The only asterisk to that is that um, I think like a couple hours before we started recording, um, Secretary of State Pompeo said that uh, Hong Kong is not um, uh, separate from China anymore, right. and uh, which has all of these diplomatic um, uh, uh, ramifications and a lot of trade deals that that go up in smoke. So you know maybe for you know we'll we'll go back to factories whether we want to or not. <laughs> um, but there, I don't think there's anything inherent to the factory model that um, brings about a good standard of living or uh, worker power. Uh, I, I think, you know, you can just as easily have, um, and again, probably not any more of an expert at, at, as, as Andy, but I, I don't see any reason why you can't have worker, a strong worker power in something that is not, um, like, dangerous, dirty industry. Right. Yeah, I agree with you guys 100% on all those points. I think when you see this argument, I don't think it's just nostalgia. I think there is something about how historically these jobs have been, where they're mass jobs, where you're you know, putting a whole bunch of workers together in one place, and they obviously have more bargaining power than they would elsewhere. And these are good, like value-creating jobs at the same time. There's, I think, a, a nostalgia on the left for... Um, jobs that are actually productive, right, in the Marxist sense of the terms, that actually create value as though, you know, those are inherently more valuable as a human activity than, you know, other jobs, where ultimately the argument of, of value production is not one of morality. It's not one of, like, the good qualities of life. It's, uh, it's an argument about what actually makes capitalism run, what makes, you know, accumulation possible. I think when you, when you see a push towards, um, you know, increased industrialization in the United States, which, by the way, in absolute, not in relative terms, but as an absolute, in absolute terms, uh, the U.S. produces more manufacturing goods than it ever did up until today. It's merely just as a percentage of the economy. It, it's gotten smaller. But um, 
I think what you end up seeing is um, state and local governments giving massive tax breaks to companies like Foxconn or others, or even American companies, in order to open shop in their particular locale because they're faced with this problem that we've addressed already, which is the necessity of having a cheap labor supply. So if you're going to bring these factory jobs back to the United States, you're going to have to subsidize capital to employ people at a higher wage than you would otherwise. So I think it's it's ultimately what you're looking at then maybe is um, you know mass more massive tax breaks to corporations, but I think that you guys raise you know another possibility which is that this happens in a much more adversarial and potentially catastrophic fashion with the rise of um, a trade war with China which we've already seen the inklings of um, or with and this is not out of the realm of possibility in the age of coronavirus, a breakdown in supply chains. Uh, but then you're starting to see a situation where ultimately like industrial union jobs become the least of our concerns if we're starting to have like a massive uh, interruption of um, the, the production and the distribution of goods that we all need to survive if globalization falls apart in a catastrophic way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the only thing to add here is that we also don't need to build as many things. Like we could have, like we need to maintain a lot of things that we've already built, uh, and and get them up in working order. And then maybe you know, like if you have to, like say, you know, con convert all of the U.S.'s transportation infrastructure from uh, uh, fossil fuel-based cars to trains or whatever. You know, like that's a big undertaking that requires a lot of new production capacity, and it's actually cheaper to build it closer to where you're using it because these are big, heavy things. Trains are big, heavy things. Uh, but um, uh, you know, short of that, you know, we, I think we probably need to be a lot more creative about like what um, uh, actual you know like use value things that we build could look like. And I I, I often like to look at the uh, Sometimes it's called the Cleveland model. Other times it's called the Evergreen Cooperative model uh, out of um, Cleveland, Ohio, where um, you know, like states work with eds and meds, you know, educational facilities and medical facilities to uh, uh, start up worker-owned co-ops of like really unsexy things, like industrial laundry, you know, or or solar power uh, installation and stuff like that. And like those sorts of jobs are high-paying. They're good. It's hard to outsource them. Um, and, uh, and, and can be very dignified. Then, so maybe in a very ironic fashion, um, we shouldn't be looking to recreate the past. We shouldn't be looking to reindustrialize per se. Uh, we should be looking to make sure that the working class in this country is able to force the capitalist class and force the state to at least give us a living uh, in the jobs that we currently have right now, or even subsidize us, something that you know, has been possible, but we haven't seen in the Corona crisis, um, socialize our social reproduction outside of the labor sphere. But for as long as we have wage labor, maybe the future is going to look like a mass unionization drive at Target or at Walmart, and maybe even the vanguard of this, this new upsurge in working class self-activity might be handlebar mustached, suspender wearing uh, weirdos who work in um, facsimile shoe factory uh, cafes in Huntsville, Alabama. Maybe when they unionize, maybe when they fight, maybe when they come together, they will help the working class to fight where it is as it is at the time that we're in. What a beautiful picture.